Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Choddy bringing you the best of my Times radio show. It's Politics at the Boring Bits, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. Just listen on your DAB radio for free, download the Times radio app, or just ask your smart speaker. Coming up on today's episode, what was it like working for Alec Douglas Hume when he was Prime Minister? What was it like dating Margaret Thatcher's daughter? What was it like ending up in prison and then what was it like training to be a priest uh, luckily one man knows all of those things it's Jonathan Aitken he's our big thing coming up on today's episode a really fascinating conversation about politics and faith and what draws people into politics and redemption and regret so yeah well worth uh, staying for that but before that as we always do on a Friday it's time for these two The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. On Times Radio. And we say hello to India Knight. Hello, India. Hi, good morning, Matt. Yeah, nice to have you. And James Marriott's here. How are you, James? I'm well, yeah. I'm having fun. Are you? Yeah. We will come to fun. Okay, have I preempted You've pre-empted. an item? Okay. Well, it's all right, fine, we'll come to fun. We'll talk about having fun in a minute. Uh, before that, no fun. Let's talk about uh, this. It would be an unconventional thing uh, for me to do. Um, but I just, I don't know, there's, there's a big young audience out there who don't really have anyone uh, that speaks to them, it seems to me, in current affairs and politics in Britain. That's what tempts me, but I haven't signed a contract yet. That is Nigel Farage playing the absolutely classic... Uh, too many people don't know enough about politics, so that's why I'm going to take a million pounds and go into the army celebrity jungle. 
Uh, India, do you think any politician has ever gone into the Army Celebrity Jungle and reconnected with a whole new audience? Matt Hancock talked about peeling back the layers uh, when he went in to re-engage politicians going out where the real people are. Does it ever work, do you think? No, I don't think it ever works. And I think the idea of Nigel Farage in particular feeling in the most delusional way imaginable that he might be a conduit for the concerns of young people and that they might fall upon him gratefully and see him as their saviour is just so bananas. Why does he think that? Everybody knows that that's not going to happen. I suspect, though, uh, James, he knows that that's not really why he's going to do it. It's because, uh, as we know because we found out quite a lot about the state of his bank account and its contents over the last uh, few months. Uh, you know, he could probably do with the money. That If they really are, as the papers suggest, offering him close to a million pounds to do it, that, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, and I'm, I'm not totally convinced that it is a disastrous idea for your reputation, because I think Matt Hancock ended up coming out of um, I'm a Celebrity with his reputation at least somewhat enhanced, I think it kind of humanised him a bit. You are, um, you are delusional. I not, I mean, not for me, but I think you know when they put when they polled people, and he kind of he got pretty far. Um, and I think I don't know. You can be too blasé about thinking, oh, these, you know, everybody will think these people are terrible. And I think we're actually quite surprised at how well people started responding to Matt Hancock. Um, yeah, I remember. I remember Nigel Farage um, doing. Uh, so sorry. when they did poll it, fourteen percent of people had a more positive view of Matt Hancock. That's not, I mean, that is not nothing uh, in politics. 7% had a more negative view. So I suppose that's a net improvement of 7%. Uh, 5% no change. 40% said, 5% uh, said no change. They still had a positive view. That's his, that was his baseline. <laughs> and 40% uh, said no change, still had a negative review. I've actually written my column um, for The Times on Saturday uh, about how, uh, in an increasingly divided, polarised Britain, you know, we've got protests on the streets, and everyone's angry online, and we've lost, you know, the things we used to gather around, you know, the late queen or, you know, the church, whatever it might be. The one thing that everyone can agree on is that they loathe Matt Hancock. And I think it's a, it's a, it's the only thing that anyone at the COVID inquiry can agree on is that uh, whether you're Dominic Cummings or the most senior civil servants, they all loathe Matt Hancock. All those SAS guys seem exactly, pretty, all the SAS pretty unhappy people, about him. Young and old, as long as they survive these care homes, um, they all um, they all agree I mean, on Matt Hancock. I guess this was the basis of his TV strategy, was that yeah. he was not going to become much... It was going to be hard for him to get more unpopular. And I suppose Nigel Farage is perhaps thinking, young people aren't exactly my biggest fan, so there's little to lose if that's who I'm targeting. They're and, not going to dislike me more. And there are people who like Nigel Farage, uh, India, and they'll probably like seeing him on the telly more. They probably will. They like seeing him eating worms. I wonder about the eating worm aspect. I wonder how, I wonder how much he'd be up for it. <laughs> he doesn't strike me. He strikes me as somebody who thinks, yes, I could be, I could be submerged in water in a box with spiders and rats, and I'd be, I'm hard, I'd be fine. But actually, it'd be quite interesting to see. Because I suspect he isn't. Now, given that we know, India, you can rustle up a dish at a moment's notice. If presented with worms or kangaroos' testicles, how would you serve them up? Uh, <laughs> I find... Do you know, this is this sounds so party pooperish. I'm really against eating animals, for live animals, for no reason. I think it's really horrible. But I suppose lightly steamed. <laughs> with some greens. With some greens. With some greens. Some jungle greens, yes. Would you go in the jungle, James? 
no. Given your, no, your, given your celebrities only heading in one direction. Yeah, well, when my career really crashes and burns, uh, after after I've had this argument about Shakespeare that you're going to force <laughs> me to have later, maybe I will decide to go into the go into the jungle. What about you, India? Is there any, any reality show you'd do? No. None at all? No. But what about you, Matt? Uh, yeah, would you do I it? think you would go to the jungle. I, don't, I wouldn't do the jungle. Would you not? No, I think... I think you could thrive in the jungle, I think it's actually. quite high risk. I think... I do Bake Off. Bake Off, yeah. I do. Oh, yeah, Bake, bake Off. Um, bake Off's fine. I'd prob- would I do Strictly? I probably would do Strictly, if asked, if pressed. The phone is going to start ringing right now, you realise. <laughs> Should the ball come loose from the scrum? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I yeah. do the lying one, the Claudia Winkleman, what's it called? The, like, the brilliant lying the traitors. thing. The people. What? Traitors. Yes, I do traitors. I, if see, have I haven't watched that. The one I'd really like to go on oh, is good. The Wheel. I know that's not a reality TV show. So one minute the... ago it was, oh, I wouldn't do reality TV. Now you're listing every single reality <laughs> TV show you'd love to go yeah, on. That's more of a quiz. Okay. We, well, in fact, because when Mariella Foster put I went on Pointless, it's still not been on the telly yet, um, even though it was about eight or nine months ago. Telly is weird. Telly um, is weird. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's that. We've, we've drifted quite a long way there from, from Nigel Farage <laughs> of the Jungle. Let's talk about having fun. Barbara Streisand says in her new memoir she regrets not having had more fun in her life. You, Gov, have asked the question, to what extent, if at all, do you prioritise having fun in your day-to-day life? 11% say a great deal, 44% a fair amount, 35% not very much, 5% not at all. Uh, do you have? Uh, do you prioritise fun in your life, India? Should we? Yeah, I think we should, but I think... Um, I think having fun a bit like happiness is you you kind of have to work at it i think people think that you just sit there and your life is either fun or happy or amazing or not um and i think also it also i think having fun can come from really teeny tiny things so i have an enormous amount of fun pottering about which you know is not an exciting proposition by anybody's um anybody's standard but but there are small ways of having fun and if you if you sort of string together all the little bits of fun then you end up with quite a big chunk of fun activity my only concern about this poll james is that i like the idea of you finding your own things of fun what i don't like is organized fun i don't like other people saying oh that's all that that'll be a bit of fun um and you know whether it's drinking games or um karaoke other people's idea of fun. I don't want. I don't want that prioritised in my life. Yeah, I'm strongly opposed. Although I, I'm a little bit of a hypocrite because I'm currently in the process of organising my first stag do. Oh, as a, as a as a best man. What are you doing? Uh, I we're thinking. Well, there was some talk what, of Globe Theatre. <laughs> we're thinking Laser Quest. <laughs> Laser Quest. We're going to go to Laser Quest and Ilford. You're going old plan. school. Yeah. Um, and actually, speaking of fun, I was in a, an amusement arcade in North Norfolk playing air hockey over the weekend, and I was like, "This is." Unbelievably fun, yeah, yeah, and I was yeah, actually yeah. thinking I did not have enough fun. Air this hockey. is ridiculously good. You are quite serious. I think you you project a degree of seriousness. I think you need more fun in your life. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I need to. Do you know what I'd like to see you on? Bucking Bronco. Well, um, oh, yeah, that would be good. My friend Ed Stag do in uh, early <laughs> early next year. Maybe Can we make that happen before Christmas. We probably could. Not as long, I don't want the cameras or, or recording well, equipment cameras, in there. I, it can happen privately and I'll tell you about it, it hasn't afterwards. Been put on Times Radio social media, it hasn't happened. What was also liked about this was 61% of Lib Dems have a great deal or a fair amount of fun prioritised in their life. More than, more, than any other, more than any other group. Would not have predicted that. Remainers more than Leavers. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe Leavers have less fun these days because everyone's pointing out. 
Yeah, how constantly. terribly wrong they were. That's not very they fun. Don't, they don't get, go, don't get invited to the pub at the same Being way. Being incredibly wrong is not fun. What should we do to James to make sure he has fun, India? Um, I'm very keen on the bucking bronco. <laughs> Um, people have been sending in the small things that um, give them a certain amount of fun. My wife's just messaged me saying bleeding radiators. Oh, yeah, really satisfying. Really satisfying. That's good. Uh, uh, Elsa says, my ferret, he's extremely cute, but he bites some of the people some of the time. That's not fun. The unpredictability keeps it fun. Uh, could we get you on a, on a bucket ball go holding a ferret? Uh, I'm going to start refusing to appear on this programme if this is the direction things are <laughs> this taking. This is the only fun that you have, James. Uh, I, I have lots of fun uh, writing writing opinion columns by myself with no need of bucking broncos or ferrets or any of this apparatus, which strikes me superfluous. Uh, now, it's time for our regular feature on a Friday where we find someone who disagrees with what James has written about in his column. Now, James, uh, first of all, lay out uh, the... In fact, you don't need to lay out the details of your column, only fools doubt the genius of Shakespeare because of a brand new feature on the Times website uh, where they've got an AI bot to read... No, no, it's me. Well, no, you've just ruined my joke, James. Oh, fine. Oh, sorry. I do sound like an AI bot. <laughs> to be honest, if it was an AI bot, we might be able to dial up the enthusiasm a bit more. Well, uh, so this is a new innovation on the Times website where you can hear um, people reading out their own columns. So let's take a listen to, to what James has done with it. Critic Harold Bloom in crediting Shakespeare with the invention of the human, and I'm willing to go at least some of the way with him, then the first folio is the founding document of modern consciousness. Shakespeare's preeminence has always inspired envious hostility. The novelist Leo Tolstoy, who suffered the unique frustration of being a near Shakespearean genius, professed to find only repulsion, weariness, and bewilderment in the plays. They, so I want to explain. Uh, no, no, hang this. on, whoa, 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 whoa! Can we play it again? I want can we, the, the deep sigh of how even you're bored of this in the middle. Let's have a listen. Let's have a listen. If you follow the critic Harold Bloom in crediting Shakespeare with the invention of the human, and I'm willing to go at least some of the way with him, then the first folio is the founding document of modern consciousness. Shakespeare's preeminence <laughs> has always inspired envious hostility. Right, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. Can I, can I explain? Yes, go on, Joe. So I was in this weird recording studio right. where it was playing every tiny noise back to me and I could hear myself breathing. Right. So I stopped... So you thought you'd really so lean I, into the breathing? No, no, so I stopped breathing because it was putting me off so much. <laughs> but then I got to the end of the first paragraph and I realised that I was running out of air and I kind of had a... I thought they would take that out. Um, but yeah, I had to breathe really deeply. Um, it was a very strange experience. So um, the let's let's talk about the substance, James. Having a mox because once again, my, I've had the Friday text of my wife saying, "Don't be mean to James." Can, um, can we just can we just have Alison on instead of you? No, In the few, I think I'd find that nicer. <laughs> Uh, she'd soon turn. Uh, so you're, the point that you're arguing is that only fools doubt the genius of Shakespeare. Where do you stand on Shakespeare? Um, in fact, India, before I speak to you, let's bring in the journey to Rebecca Reed, uh, who's on the line. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Uh, you you think James is wrong? I'm a fool. I I doubt the genius of Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare is a snorefest. And I think that <gasps> anybody, with the greatest of respect, James, anybody who professes to love Shakespeare probably isn't very well versed in the rest of the canon of British literature because there are so many wildly better writers. Um, and I just think it's a little bit lazy to be like, oh yeah, Shakespeare, he's the Don. No, we didn't improve from from his work. How sad if we hadn't? I don't know where to begin there because there was a huge <laughs> intake of breath from India and James looks genuinely Sorry. hurt. Yeah, I feel upset. People do get really upset when I say this. I do. It's like, my work, it's like the thing that I say that upsets people the most. And do you genuinely think it? 
Yeah, yeah. I think honestly, like sometimes I'll say it at a dinner party and people think I'm saying it to get a reaction. It's I mean it from the bottom of my soul. I'm a multiple English literature graduate and I think Shakespeare is bobbins. This is absolutely mental. I can't <laughs> process this. I do think there's a point that often Shakespeare, I mean, I I think Shakespeare is number one genius of all time, but going to see Shakespeare, as I actually did this week. What did you go and see? I went to see it's Kenneth Branagh as King Lear and it was absolutely excruciatingly terrible. <laughs> oh, um, was it? Yeah, it was really, really bad. What made it bad? Was it all the Shakespeare? Oh, it was... Nobody could act. And nobody I, I was, could act? Which I... Nobody, and it sounds like an exaggeration, but I do actor. think with Shakespeare, often people don't understand what they're saying because, mm. I don't know, they just... They don't speak like the words actually make sense. And Kenneth Branagh was just off on one. I have no idea what, what he was doing. I mean, he was way too young. King Lear is a very, very old man. And Kenneth Branagh, despite being 62, has lustrous hair and a six-pack and showed absolutely no signs of uh, trying to even pretend to be decrepit. It was a completely weird uh, evening that was highly the unpleasant. Understanding, the understanding point is an interesting one because generally speaking, when I say I think Shakespeare's rubbish, people go, that's because you don't get it or you haven't seen a good production. I've seen fantastic productions. I still think it's rubbish. I do understand it. I've studied it extensively. I still think it's rubbish. So I'm not <laughs> sure that the issue is not understanding. I think but also, if, if the problem, if, if, if you think the only way to do Shakespeare well is to basically put loads of effort into trying to explain all the time what's going on, wouldn't it be better to just do a play where it was clear what was going on? Uh, no, because I think if you get really good, I think if you get really good, intelligent actors, of whom I would say Kenneth Branagh is usually one, they literally make it completely comprehensible. And you just sit there and you're like, yeah. I understand all of this. But if people don't understand what they're saying or don't act, it really, Shakespeare's one of those things where you can't quite act brilliantly. It really suffers with that kind of deficit, I think. India. Um, you can have a India. terrible time India. watching Let me bring in India, because I think she was studying the science. But India, uh, what, what's your take on this, this, this debate which is dividing Britain? No, I'm very much on on the side of James. I I still I loved Macbeth so much when I first read it for English O level, as it then was, that I that I can still remember most of it by heart. I mean, I can still recite most of it. And that moment, Rebecca, that moment. I don't know if you saw it the other day when um, uh, Judy Dench recited a sonnet on Graham Norton. It was a very powerful moment. Everyone was sort of, you know, it goes viral even now. What four hundred years on, uh, his yeah, language has the power to move. Uh, but I don't think that's his language. I think Judy Dench is an incredible actress doing work with some stuff that's fairly hackneyed at this point. And I think this idea that it's somehow better because it's harder is an intellectual snobbery. And when we talk about King Lear, like succession is, is King Lear, right? Except it's not hard work. It's enjoyable. And if the purpose is to entertain and distract and create family dynamics i don't understand why you wouldn't want to watch a version that's easy and punchy and accessible rather than the version that takes vast amounts of work to make a bit palatable james I, i'm speechless i mean where do you begin to i don't know how to even begin to explain to summarize the hundreds of books that have been written on why shakespeare's a genius i mean but isn't that just why, I mean, is, he a genius? why is he a genius well it's the reason it's the reason that you look at a quattrocento painting and are more engaged and interested than when you look at a cartoon of the Annunciation. You know, it's because not everything has to be stupid and whittled down mm. and immediately graspable and comprehensible. It's because there is such incredible beauty in the language and the sentiment and in the subtlety of the emotions being expressed. And of course you can get that served up in neon, in technicolour, in bite-sized pieces, but it isn't the same. You, and, and but it's Alan Bennett isn't... And Alan Bennett isn't stupid or neon. Pinter isn't stupid or neon. Patrick Marber isn't stupid or neon. No, I'm not saying everybody's yeah. crap. I'm <laughs> saying Shakespeare is great, and there are lots of subsequent, later, yeah. contemporary great playwrights. But 
but they're not better. And it also it's a false comparison. I think they are better in the sense that hopefully we get better at everything we do as time goes on. And also, I think for me, they're better because they've they've lived parts of human experience that didn't exist back in the day. And I think there's this thing about like, it's so universal. You could do a version of Romeo and Juliet that feels current. Can you really? The experience of being 14 yeah. now is so wildly different. And my main issue with Shakespeare is that people just do the same plays over and over and over again, where that money could be spent on making new work with new playwrights. That's one of the reasons the theatre is in such dire straits, because people just want to say see the same thing over and over also, again. Also, the worst thing But about another the reason why the theatre <laughs> is in such dire straits is that there are terrible, terrible plays being produced that have no value, and so people aren't, inter people aren't interested in seeing them. Also, but I agree. It's because James it's is such an influencer. He comes on and slags off uh, Kenneth Banner, and then nobody will go to see it. The worst thing, actually, about Shakespeare is when they try to make it modern and cool, and it's all you know, yeah. Romeo and Juliet texting. But can we just, I think, this has been the best debate we've had on the show in ages, but can we can we end on, uh, I think we can probably all find some consensus. There's a particular level of gall from James to criticise the, the performance of Ken Banner, having given us this. If you follow the critic Harold Bloom in crediting Shakespeare with the invention of the human, and I'm willing to go at least some of the way with him, then the first folio is the founding document of modern consciousness. Shakespeare's preeminence has always inspired... And I think we can all agree on that. Can we all agree on that? Rebecca? I think maybe Kenneth Branagh, Kenneth Branagh might have done a, a... He would have had a different take. I'm not saying it's better or yeah, worse. Yeah, that's true. India? I quite like James. It's quite sonorous. He's got a mellifluous <laughs> voice, One for he? bedtime. Put it on the bedtime. Uh, James, I apologise again about this turning into a, a, essentially a bullying thing. I know you're going to go straight to HR. <laughs> yeah, right away. Indian Night and James Merritt. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week if that's your idea of fun. Uh, just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, a really fascinating conversation with Jonathan Aitken. 1974 but it all came crashing down when he was convicted of perjury and jailed in 1999. He then found or re-found God, retraining as a priest and now working as a prison chaplain. In a remarkable conversation, we discuss faith, prison reform, what Rishi Sunak could learn from Douglas Hume and why politicians seem to lose their moral compass. But we began by talking about why three years 
sorry, three decades after she left Downing Street and a decade after her death, why the Conservative Party is still haunted by, maybe still in love with, Margaret Thatcher. May we bring harmony. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. And we're very happy that we leave the United Kingdom in a very, very much better state. Ten years ago, almost to the day as we sit here, uh, Jonathan Aitken's biography of Margaret Thatcher was released. Uh, where he described her as, amongst other things, obnoxious, bullying, unpleasant, alienating, opportunistic, insufferably rude, foolish, arrogant, grudge-bearing, and yet you were really a fan of her as well. Jonathan Aker, welcome to Times Radio. You'd have, to, you'd have to be a genius to extract those adjectives <laughs> from what was a very favourable biography. A very favourable biography. Um, I wanted to sort of start, really, with uh, actually the fact it is ten years on, and it struck me that perhaps for the first time in a long time, perhaps if ever, 10 years after your biography, 10 years after the death of Margaret Thatcher, she doesn't seem to haunt the Tory party on a sort of daily basis in the way that she actually did do for decades after she left power. Do you think that's right? I think the verb haunt is wrong. Uh, I think she inspires the Conservative Party. Um, Not everyone agreed with her, and they never did. But she was a very formidable presence. I mean, I had an up-and-down relationship with her myself. But at the end of the day, she was a big figure politically with very interesting and in some ways revolutionary ideas. And she changed Britain in a big way. So, of course, anybody in politics, whether they're Labour or Conservative or God knows what, should actually pay a lot of attention to Margaret Thatcher and what drove her, what inspired her and what made her the remarkable Prime Minister she was. Let's look a bit then at your, your relationship with her. Take, take me back to the first time you encountered Margaret Thatcher and, and your sense of, was this a person who was going to dramatically change Britain? Well, I think the first time I ever encountered her was when I was the 22-year-old Conservative candidate for Meriden in 1966, and she was uh, quite a junior opposition spokesman. And she was very awkward um, with a microphone, um, with her hats. She wasn't a a person you would have taken a hundred to one bet on for being a future Tory leader. Mrs Thatcher, it's always supposed to be a tremendous ordeal, maiden speech, was it for you? Oh, very much so. I've done a good deal of other speaking, but speaking in the House of Commons is quite different. It's a unique experience. Do you think it's more difficult because you are a woman? Uh, No, I didn't notice that. It really is because of of the quality of one's audience and the fact that most of them have had more experience at doing precisely what you are doing. But even so, even in 66, she had a presence uh, and she was a force and she spoke to an absolutely bored, rainy crowd in Coventry Market, if I remember rightly, pretty forcefully. So she was interesting, even in days when she had not really made any impact at all. And then what did you make then of her transformation from slightly awkward, stilted, middle-ranking opposition spokesperson into leadership contender and then leader? Well, she was always easily identifiable 
as somebody who might change the weather of politics. Most people thought she wouldn't at the beginning because she wasn't at all good in the House of Commons when she was leader of the opposition. Callaghan, frankly, outmaneuvered her and patronized her. It was only when she became prime minister that she really started to fire up with great confidence and then take decisions which were extraordinarily bold, seen in retrospect. Was that, was that in part driven by, you know, the way that Callaghan approached her and others? Was it essentially sexism? The, the, you know, politics was overwhelmingly male then, far more so than it is now. And there was an awful lot of men around her on her, her, her own side, as well as the opposition, who just thought this is really a man's world. Well, obviously the Conservative Party did not think well, that. Well, that is true, because they chose the her. Because the Conservative Parliamentary Party elected her. Uh, secondly, um, she stuck to her guns through thick and thin, because she didn't really listen to the music or ordinary politics. Bernard Ingham loves to tell the story how difficult it was ever to get her to read anything in the press about herself. He had to sort of push her and saying the Daily Express says this. Uh, interesting you'd respond to that. She wasn't really interested in, but she was interested in the deeper currents. And the deepest current, she wanted to make Britain significant and important again. And she succeeded. And then, um, I, before we move on from, from Margaret Thatcher, we should talk about your up and down relationship with Margaret Thatcher. It got more complicated when you, you briefly went dated Carol Thatcher, her daughter. Um, it, one thing, you know, Margaret Thatcher being your, your party leader, prospective mother-in-law must have been an even more intimidating prospect. Of course, when you're young, you don't think of <laughs> things like that. You start relationships, it was a very deep relationship. And I couldn't be happier in Sunday that Carol has just got married. And so the last thing was on my mind was, um, is this lady going to be my mother-in-law? Although we did actually think about getting married, um, but that was late in the day. Um, and I actually found Margaret very human in that stage. Uh, and I saw a lot of her in very human um, ways when she was in the kitchen or losing her temper and these kind of things. And I um, thought she was very difficult, um, but I wasn't sort of fussing about, <laughs> she can be my, my mother-in-law. <laughs> this was sort of young love. Do you think the fact that that relationship ended affected your political career? Well, a lot of people said that. Um, I'm not so sure, only because I think Margaret really was bigger than that. I think the real reason my political career didn't move was a very odd reason, because I was, would you believe it, the sort of leader of the Eurosceptics. They were not called that. They were called the Conservative European Reformers. But we used to divide the House of Commons quite often, late at night, on European statutory instruments. Things like, would you believe it, the harmonization of lawnmower noise bill. I'm not joking, there <laughs> yeah, wasn't yeah, such sure. a statute. And people got very cross. And I think the whip said, you can't have Jonathan Aitken, he's always rebelling. <laughs> and there was one sort of league table of rebels and Richard Shepherd or something and I appeared at the top of it. Yeah. This was such bad ad advertisement for party loyalty that I think that... that, that so it was your own fault. Margaret Thatcher really, was, of course, in favour of being a Eurosceptic. Yes, exactly, end, so. yeah, yeah. But yeah, maybe you just got a reputation yeah. of being a troublemaker. Yeah. I began by talking about the, the sort of the, the way that Margaret Thatcher hung over the Tory party. Obviously, immediately he was essentially backseat driving John Major. But then, you know, William Hague sort of had this awkward relationship with her. It's the point that the Labour Party were mocking him up with her hair to 
you know, as a sort of stick to beat him with. And then, you know, much more recently, we've had Liz Truss essentially aping lots of Margaret Thatcher's stunts and language and so on, although David Cameron would say there's no, uh, there is such a thing as a side, it's not the same. As the state. You know, the Tory leaders having to define themselves, actually, uh, even Rishi Sunak, you know, approvingly quoting Margaret Thatcher in his most recent party conference, do you think she'd be surprised that she's still the dominant figure, certainly on the right, that, that leaders either define themselves alongside or against? No, I don't think she'd be surprised. She always thought she was right all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that'd be quite normal. On the other hand, what she did enjoy, and very few people understood this, but I understood it, she liked a ferocious ding-dong of, of argument about ideas which she would be incredibly rude during it and say, oh, you're talking absolute poppycock was on the expression. And then she'd come around and agree to do that. <laughs> so I've been thinking about it. You know, I th Jonathan, you had a point. <laughs> and would she, because some people sort of enjoy the, the political ding-dong uh, and there's sort of no, no harm done. And other people take it very personally and think, if you're, you know, if you disagree with me, then you're essentially saying you don't like me. Does she just enjoy the debate and then you all got along afterwards or could she bear a grudge? You're quite right that a lot of people simply couldn't cope with Margaret Thatcher's abrasiveness. Top civil servants, uh, the Sir Humphreys of their day were far more polished than they are now and, and dealing with a woman um, and it was sort of, a lot of old-fashioned people like Francis Pym and so on using very ungallant to argue with a woman. This was uh, it was sort of below the belt to snap back. She wouldn't have minded in the least. And, and in, on the whole, didn't. I mean, people who did, like, Margaret, like Nigel Lawson, got on very well with her. After spending the Thatcher years on the back benches, Jonathan Aitken was promoted to the Cabinet under John Major in 1994 as Chief Secretary to the Treasury. But a year later, The Guardian published allegations about his dealings with the Saudis. Furious, he vowed to sue delivering a speech that, we, that he would come to bitterly regret. If it now falls to me to start a fight to cut out the cancer of bent and twisted journalism in our country with the simple sword of truth and the trusty shield of traditional British fair play, so be it. It strikes me that political career, you know, unless you are a Prime Minister for such a long time, in the end, political careers get boiled down to an essence or a single event. And so we should probably talk about the, 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 the reason you're best known in, in politics. Oh, we will have to. Yes. Um, you know, you, you reach the cabinet, you know, the, 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 uh, the political career, it seems to be in the ascendancy. And then you wield the mighty sword of truth and the, the shield of justice in the, the libel trial against the Guardian, which ultimately you end up pleading guilty to charges of perjury. And you go to prison in 1999 for seven months. To take us back to that period, does it suddenly feel like the, the world is sort of collapsing around you? You're, you know, sitting around the cabinet table every week. That's, you know, you're right at the centre of things. And then suddenly all of that sort of just slips away. Well, it was certainly a major career catastrophe. On the other hand, I never lost sight of the fact it was all my own fault. So I didn't have anyone to blame. I mean, I used to get very cross with the Guardian. But, um, Do you think that's worse in a way? Is it, it's yes. almost easier if there's someone else to blame. I know. <laughs> would be if there was some, but um, you know, I made a complete horlicks of this episode in my life, which actually was a comparatively minor episode when it started. But as usual, the cover-up is much worse than the incident or whatever it was. 
And um, anyway, it was a self-destruct operation. I pressed the self-destruct button several times. And then you step away from politics, you leave prison and step away from politics, and, and reinvent yourself. You know, you study theology, and then you become ordained as a priest. You're sitting here now, uh, as we talk, wearing a blue shirt and a white dog collar. What made you choose not just faith, but as a career path, if you like, rather than somebody might just retreat into their own private faith, but ordaining as a priest? In my case, um, I think I'd have been insensitive if after going through what I sometimes call from defeat to disgrace to divorce to bankruptcy and to jail, if I hadn't stopped to think, where did I go wrong? And one of the areas where I realized I'd gone wrong was to sort of lose my own moral and spiritual anchors. So I sort of tried to investigate the fault lines. So I explored them with a whole lot of unlikely characters in prison and prayer groups. And at the end of it, I went to the only place in Britain I could possibly have found which had worse food and more uncomfortable beds than the prison. And this was an Anglican theological college <laughs> where I went to study. And my three-year sentence at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, was a really inspiring period of my life. Did, did you have faith before, when you were a young man and then going in, into politics? Was faith part of your life? It was there. I often say I was a half-Christian, which, uh, which I mean I was like being half-pregnant. It didn't really mean very much, but still it was there. Occasionally when I was an MP at election time, uh, people would turn up, usually priests, to say, we want to ask questions about your faith. Uh, and um, uh, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they would say. And I think, my God, what a creepy, <laughs> cheesy <laughs> question. But if I thought about it, I mean, yes, I did have a sort of relationship, but it was the kind of relationship I used to have with my bank manager. I, you know, I knew that he existed. I used to think it was important enough to be visited in his premises every so often. Um, I really thought deep down... He, I should stay in touch because he could be useful to me one day. Um, but all this time, I thought I was in charge of the account, not bank manager Jesus. So it was a very unsatisfactory relationship, but it wasn't an ignorant relationship. It wasn't a completely out-of-touch relationship. Is there something about politics that means that not just you, but others, and you, you know, we still see it almost every week in the, in the news now, there's something about politics that means it's easy to lose your moral compass. Well, it's certainly tempting. I think politics is one heck of an ego trip, and ego trips are the opposite of Christian <laughs> faith. Uh, so th there are blockages and obstacles. If um, The first person I really worked for in politics was um, Alec Douglas Hume. He was a man of deep faith just to amuse you for a second, one day I was with him, and uh, it was known very quietly, because we didn't mention it, that he was an evangelical Christian. And somebody found this out, and she, this lady cornered Alec in the sort of corner of the ballroom of the Blackpool Hotel and said, Sir Alec, Sir Alec, I hear you've been saved. I hear you've been saved. Uh, have you been saved? He looked very nervously, and he said very quiet, but well, uh, Madam, I, I think I have been. And she said, Sir Alec, why are you not proclaiming it from the rooftops and trumpeting abroad? 
and Alexander. <laughs> Madam, in my case, it was such a close run thing. I've always thought I should keep quiet about it. <laughs> it's interesting, though, that you say that, that Alec Douglas Human, this is going, you know, clearly going a long way back, felt he couldn't be open about his faith. And this, this seems to be true even more so today when we've seen. You know, Kate Forbes, who was running for the, the, the leadership of the SNP in Scotland, and her faith became a big part of the conversation. I interviewed Frank Field a few, uh, a couple of months ago, and he felt he was pursuing his faith through his politics, but he'd never say so publicly. But it's interesting that doesn't seem to be a new phenomenon, that even, even Alec Douglas Hume, what were we talking about back in the, what, 50s, 60s? 60s, uh, yes. In the 60s, he felt he couldn't be open about his faith, that that wasn't the done thing in politics. I don't think he concealed it, but I think... In American politics, almost everyone wears their religious faith on their sleeve and boasts about it. And we've never been that way, or at least not for a very long time. Disraeli made a joke about Gladstone, said, uh, I don't mind uh, Gladstone having the ace of trumps up his sleeve, but I wish he would not keep on claiming that God put it there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and almost ever since then, I think British politicians, I think it's good development now, do not put their faith in the sort of shop window. I think they answer questions about it, honestly, when asked. But we don't sort of parade our faith. I think a few Northern Ireland politicians did, but that's about it. And I think, on the whole, that's healthy. Um, faith is predominantly a private matter. But if you want to talk about it publicly, well, why not? That's your choice. Um, let's talk about the other aspect of your, your life now, as well as being a, a priest. Um, you are a part-time prison chaplain at HMP Penterville. And we've seen in the, the, the recent King's speech and Richie Senate laying out what he wants to do in his last year before the general election, that there's a lot of discussion about what is going on in our prisons. Should people be, you know, let's lock up the, the really bad ones for longer, but fewer uh, um, short sentences. Give us a sense of how you view the state, of our, the state of our prisons. I've listened to some of the King's speech and I said to myself, dream on, because where are we going to put all these guys? In Pentonville, we have space for sprufflely uh, 1,250 prisoners. Week after week, we have the announcement, <coughs> we've got 1,240, 1,242. Every prison is jammed full and they're now quietly releasing a few people early to make space. So number one, if you're going to increase all these sentences, get tougher, you're going to build a lot more prisons, it's going to take some time. So there's some gaps between policy dreaming and practical reality. Um, our prisons are very unsatisfactory. I mean, some people obviously ought to be in prison, uh, and some of the people, I think, was being singled out by the King's Speech should be there for life, and so I'm not quarrelling with anything. But in terms of the practical realities, I'd like to see much more concentration on the people as they come out of prison. And the state has really given up rehabilitation. It's private charities, only people who really try and get people into jobs, um, who try and help rebuild lives. The probation service does its best, but it's become a box-ticking service rather than a rehabilitation service. And so... It is a mess, uh, the whole prison and probation service. And I'm full of admiration for the guys who just about make it work, prison officers and probation officers, prison governors and so on. But if uh, I ever got a chance by some magic wand to be a prisons minister, I'd have a, a, a list of reforms as 
as long as you're asleep. Listening to you um, speaking, I'm just sort of thinking occasionally the political conversation more generally and in the Tory party, we go through spasms of does prison work? Prison works, no it doesn't work. I mean clearly there's the aspect of some people are very dangerous and should be kept off our streets and you know and that is where they are kept in prison but there are lots of people who go to to do their time having been um, found guilty and that we all hope as a society if they then leave prison that they don't repeat that and end up back in prison again do you think at the moment the prison system works with the latter group well no it does not work in the category you're talking about and you only have to look at one somewhat elastic statistic um, but how many people reoffend and go back to prison? But it's at least 50%. And if you were trying to look at those who haven't been caught and so on, it's sort of the order of 70, 80%, particularly of the very young prisoners. So we are doing almost nothing to um, prevent reoffending. We're punishing offenders, we're incarcerating offenders. And that does, to some extent, mean prison works because you keep some dangerous people off the streets and you punish some people who need to be punished <laughs> but we actually ought to shift some money to serious rehabilitation or seriously funding charities which do it quite well which might be easier. It's interesting you mentioned the Home Secretary. I can't quite imagine the current Home Secretary going to the Treasury and asking for any money for this, <coughs> this woolly tofu eating, whatever it is she calls yes. it, uh, rehabilitation. Yeah. It's all tough, 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 you know, talking tough, lock them up, throw away the key, homelessness is a lifestyle choice and, and all of that. What sort of state do you think the Conservative Party is in when we've got, you know, rows around the Cabinet table almost about precisely the thing we're talking about. You've got the Justice Secretary who wants to do more rehabilitation, getting rid of shorter sentences and so on and the, the Home Secretary taking exactly the opposite approach. Is it, is it a good place for the, for the Conservative Party to be? Once a party is split and divided, um, not just over policy issues, I think it's healthy to have divisions over policies, but once you get sort of as much personalised backbiting, uh, it'll have great difficulty getting elected. And I'm sure Rishi Sunak is struggling to get unity and collegiality uh, and I uh, hope he does. Um, do you think he can? Can he turn this round? Well, before everyone gives up, as most people have on that question, a historical memory, it's not a bad one. I was a young assistant speechwriter for Alec Douglas Hume, who became Prime Minister in 1963 after the most appalling splits, Night of the Long Knives, yeah. Blackpool Conference, everybody fighting. When we got to the 64 election, Alec Douglas, whom had been predicted to lose to Harold Wilson by 300 seats, actually lost by three seats. About Sir Alec Douglas Hume, I would have thought it was undeniable that bearing in mind the huge Labour lead earlier in the year, that to have got within this distance of winning, he did pretty well. So I think one prediction I'll make is that we're not going to be in the business of great landslides. The gap will narrow. How much it'll narrow too is uh, for people above my pay grade. <laughs> but um, I, I don't think anyone should be take things for granted now, as uh, some commentators seem to be. It's interesting that because normally the conversation about what's the next election going to be like is going to, you know, people say it's '92 and John Major, you know, pulls off a surprise victory. '97 and it's a Labour landslide. What, what are the lessons of six, six, your, your time with Alec Dodd's Hume in 64? What, what could 
if, if Rishi Sunak picks up a history book to look back at Alec Douglas Hume's time when you were there, what are the lessons of, of 63, 64? Well, one is behaving well uh, as a parliamentary party. It's not behaving well at the moment, but once it starts to look like a, a collegiate, unified party, that will help. Secondly, I think actually Richie Sunak will get some credit for some of the good policy work that he's done. And I think Douglas Hume got that too. Another thing is an international crisis. Well, we've got one. I think Alec Hague Douglas Hume would have won the election if Khrushchev had resigned a week earlier. He resigned the day of the British general election. He was thrown out. But people were afraid of nuclear war. People were afraid of international military dramas. And I think the nation comes together. So maybe we're maybe only at the beginning of the present Middle East crisis. And maybe the Prime Minister will emerge as a very strong statesman-like leader in an hour of peril. The, politics is a game of glorious uncertainty. We don't know what's around the corner. And I think, if, 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 like no one else, you probably know that better than most uh, in the world of uh, politics. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. If you haven't done already, head over to How to Win an Election. Daniel Finkelstein, Peter Manson and Polly McKenzie uh, this week taking a look at how to win at policy. Uh, just search for it wherever you're listening to this and hit subscribe because it's useful for the mumbo-jumbo charts. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly is goodbye. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.